If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program starting this June. I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Monica Lupo. She is the owner and CEO of Speak Your Legacy, Inc., providing mobile fees testing and home-based speech pathology services throughout New York. She expanded her expertise into corporate SLP consulting, fees mentorship, creating and instructing fees courses, and SLP, CF, and graduate student supervision and mentorship. She's won ASHA awards for being a distinguished early career professional, consecutive ACE awards, and best speech language pathologist on Long Island, New York in 2023. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Monica. Hi, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy to be here today. Yeah, I, I am so excited to have this conversation. We were just talking offline that like we've probably crossed paths a million times, but like we don't think we've formally actually met, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a small SLP world, but I'm so glad you're on today. And I think, you know, one thing I've just loved about, you know, your content and things that you post is like, people that like that run a business that have businesses like understand how truly hard it is to like constantly be out there and like helping people and saying things. And I think like, I just love your vibe and that you can truly tell that you're doing it like for the right reasons and to make a lasting impact in your community. Like we just had our collective live event a few months ago and and the the amount of SLPs that said like, all I want to do is have an impact in my community. 
That's all I truly want, you know, and I think, and I think you, the work you've done and, and just all the extraneous activities you've done for lack of a better term, like just show that you really are just committed to helping your community. I really appreciate that because that was the exact reason that I ended up in private practice in the first place when I truly had not planned to from the beginning. (laughs) Yeah. Well, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Who are you? So my name is Monica Lupo. Um, I own Speak Your Legacy, Inc. So we do mostly home-based care. Um, We also do mobile fees. And I have a very high teaching model. So I do take students and clinical fellows. Um, I oversee licensed speech pathologists. Um, sometimes I'll teach an adjunct course or really any way that I can feed into educating the community of clinicians and also the best access to education so we could help the patients in any way possible. So we service in the home for that reason. Um, I end up with a lot of patients that have a hard time leaving the house. Um, so I, we really, we really do our best to try and, um, bring the access to them. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. All right. So where do you want to start? What do you want to talk about today? I have a pretty controversial topic. I'm usually known for pushing the boundary a little bit. Yeah. Um, love it. <laughs> so I want to challenge all of our practicing SLPs, um, NCFs or wherever you find yourself in your career, um, specifically regarding what we think about fees. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, this has been such an up and coming topic lately. Um, so I want people to leave the podcast and think, hmm, why do I practice the way that I do? Um, how can I change what I'm doing? I feel like if we don't challenge ourselves, um, our career doesn't advance. And there's so many gray areas when it comes to fees that just aren't being talked about and aren't being addressed at all. Yep, yep. I love it. Um, it's so interesting. I just was thinking back the other day. So it's been exactly 10 years, I think this week since I started my mobile fees company. Um, and I ended up selling it a few years ago just because things got, you know, we're growing with the collective and I could only put my time and attention in so many places. But what's interesting is I had a conversation a few months back with someone and they're like, in our field, like what hill would you die on? And I was like, I would die on the fees hill any day. Like anybody, <laughs> I will be biased at two. Like, I will say that I will be the most biased person for fees for a reason, because I know what it can do for a community. So I, I love that we're going here today. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like if we don't challenge our own thinking, our field isn't growing at all. We can't make as of an impact as we are. I actually cross paths with the speech pathologist that you sold your mobile fees practice oh, to. Yeah. That speaks to how small the dysphagia community truly is sometimes. Yeah. Um, that. Yeah. There is a lot of areas that we can discuss when we think about fees. The biggest one I think always comes down to our limited guidance or our limited set standards that we have um, from the national board or from even state regulations or anything. So I almost feel like being in the fees community is like a free for all sometimes. It is. I don't know if you had that experience when you were doing mobile fees. Very, very much so. I, I think it's, it's interesting. Like it's interesting, but it's also like sort of sad at the same time. You know, it's just like, there's only so many of us doing this one really cool thing to begin with. Like, And it stinks that we can't all get on the same page about things, but also it's tough because we don't have a ton of research telling us what's explicitly right or wrong. And and it drew this truly solidified for me, like the importance of like the clinical experience of evidence-based practice, because I'm like, no, but I've seen X, Y, and Z. And they're like, well, but that's not possible. And it's like, no, but I've seen it, you know, I've seen it with my eyes. So I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. 
Yeah, and you've been in the field a long time. So there is something to say, too, about that practice-based evidence. Yeah. And I feel like we just need more research in general for what we're seeing on a daily basis and also a better mentorship model. It was so hard for me to get mentorship in New York when I was looking because it just was so uncommon and it felt so foreign um, and there weren't a ton of providers going out and doing it. And then I saw everything under the sun um, as I came across different mentorship models and companies, um, some of them only doing normal passes in their mentorship, yeah. some of them doing 10 or 15 or 20 passes. Because there really isn't a set number that we have that's like a prerequisite for us. So it really leaves a lot of gray areas for us. We also see a lot of fees that fall strictly under ENT care. And so there's always this like push and pull, I feel like, that we have with the ENTs as to should this just be an ENT jurisdiction? But when we take a step back, it's like we really specialize in that swallow function. So most times what I'm seeing is even when the test is being done in an ENT office, there's no food trials being administered. So it leaves us to end up redoing the exam sometimes, which shouldn't happen either. We should really figure out how to get our two fields really interchangeable or more connected, I'd say, so that we can carry over that care so that the patients don't have to be scoped twice either. Yeah. But I would argue even that it might fall a little bit more into our jurisdiction um, as far as looking at some of those specific swallow things where then we would maybe need the help with uh, more complex diagnoses or more airway difficulties. Yeah, I think what's interesting is I my son had a pediatric fees, baby fees when he was and it wasn't even supposed to be a fees. It was just a scope by an ENT when he was about four months old. And they, I totally, like, I was frantic mom, like, oh my God, they're doing this to my baby. Like they like take the poor kid to like this board to like be able to scope it. Like it was horrific to watch. Right. But it was like, as soon as the ENT like got in his nose, I switched into like SLP mode. And I was like, whoa, I'm like, wait, can you move the camera over here? Like, can you do this? Like, wait, can you? And, and he was like, yeah, like, what else do you want to see? And like, he's like, I didn't know like you guys did all this. And I'm like, I can't believe that you like don't have an SLP in here doing this with you. And he was like, yeah, like this was really interesting. Like you gave me a lot of information, like things that I wasn't even looking for. And I'm like, part of me, like it was such a, I was so mind blown because it was so like traumatic as a mother, but like as an SLP, it was like, this was so stinking cool. But like, why are ENTs like not working closer with us? Yeah. Well, we can collaborate. I feel like it just ends up saving time as well, because some of those things that don't fall in our scope of practice, like diagnosing some of those nodules and polyps and all of those things, it's like, they could just be there with us. And we could get it all done at once. That would be great. Yeah. Um, But you brought up a good point about the pediatric fees also, because there is so much debate over this as well. I've heard a lot of companies advertising their scopes as a pediatric scope, and some are 2.3 millimeters and some are 2.7 millimeters. And there is truly no set guideline for what is safe. And then we have guidance coming out that, it's okay to put in a four millimeter NG tube into a pediatric nose and there's limited risk for mucosal damage, but you can't stick a 2.7 millimeter scope in there. The guidelines are just so blurred and I feel like there's so many um, inconsistencies. If we had some of these better standards, I feel like a lot more people would feel comfortable going in and being like, 
I know this is the research. I know this is the standard. Now we're here to help. And here we are. We have all of this background behind us. Yeah, yeah. Another point you brought up too is like the competency of of getting fees passes. And like you said, some just do normal, some do 10, some do 20, some, I even, I did some trainings that they were, were saying you needed 50 passes. But I think what's crazy is it was probably, I don't know, maybe five-ish years ago, I would say that ASHA had really nice like guidelines on their website, like knowledge and skills assessments and like actual like guidelines for competency. I think there was like maybe three or four different documents that they had. Then they revamped their platform and took all of that away. And I've emailed like consistently, like you guys, like we need more guidance in this stuff. And they're like, oh, there's a few working groups that are working on this stuff. But like, I've been hearing that for years. So like whoever's working on these working groups, like let's get these going more because it's just, it's, it's sad that like, I felt like we sort of did have good, good guidelines and they were pretty blurry to begin with. But now I feel like it's just so blurred. It's, it's almost like horrific. Yeah. I saw that as well. I had remembered seeing some of those guidelines on the website and then going back to it to reference to somebody and wondering where they went or if I had imagined them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but even airway compromise and things like that, there's no guidance that I've seen as to do we bring a pulse ox into the room? Should it be standard practice? Should SLPs carry a stethoscope? This yeah. is another thing that's up in the air. I worked for a hospital for a little while and we took stethoscopes to bedside. And then when I went to subacute, it was just like this weird thing. Like, why are you doing that? That doesn't really fall in your scope of practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to say. I feel like if we had a little bit more clear of place as to what exactly was our scope of practice, I think it would be helpful because even with airways, I think it just gets really blurry. I can't think of a better word for it. Yeah. I recently had a conversation um, with a couple of other clinicians from other countries who were doing fees, and they were talking about how standard practice for them, they would scope into the airway if the patient had a tracheostomy. So that alone is so different than what we're seeing here when we have so much precaution for even scoping into the nose. Right. Um, but we see some of these other countries and they're like straight in the airway, looking the other way at the vocal folds. And it really definitely challenges the way that we think about things here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. Yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's funny, not funny, I think, but like a lot of that, like COVID guidance too, we took from other countries, you know, it's like crazy that we can't come to consensuses here, but rather, you know, have to take other countries guidance. So yeah, absolutely. And I also feel like we also have esophageal phase that falls under swallowing. And yep. then that kind of gets swept under the rug for us as well. We could essentially pass the scope, go all the way into the esophagus if we wanted to check on Barrett's esophagus or tissue function or how healthy something is. But those TNE tests, we're not really doing at all. That's definitely falling under the scope of the ENT here, at least. Yeah. There was um, an article that I had been reading before I was preparing for the podcast, um, and it was by Takahisha Yamasaki, and it's an article about reflux. And they reference in their reflux study that esophageal cancer is the fastest growing cancer in the United States, and it's up 850% since 1975. So it is officially the fastest growing cancer 
at 4% per year, um, which is a huge change from what we were seeing in the past. I feel like we should have much more of an alert alertness to what we're seeing for esophageal function at that point. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. And I, I, what was it last week? I came across an article, which is I had to write a paper for my PhD studies. And I came across this paper that I'd never seen before. And it said something like one in six patients have dysphagia and only half of those patients, only three of those six patients ever even seek care for it. And it just got me thinking like, why, why aren't they? Is it because they don't know it's a problem? Do they not know, you know, who can treat it? Do they not know that SLPs exist? Do they not know that treatment is an option? Do they not know that there's assessment protocols to be able to look at that? Do they not have access to assessment protocols? Like it just sent me down this whole rabbit hole of like, why are we not taking more of a stand of things that we can actually do and help patients. And and like, it goes back to helping the community with things that we know that we're more than capable of doing. Absolutely. I actually had started my mobile fees practice right in the height of COVID, which was also pretty controversial, but most of my patients were just so afraid to go into the hospitals at that time with how high the mortality rates there were. So they were like, we are not scheduling modifieds. This is not going to happen. We're not going. We're not getting testing. And after I had seen that rise um, so high, I was like, I'm just going to buy equipment. I had already taken the course before that and had smaller fees plans. And everything just blew up after that, after I realized we could do this here. And there's actually cleaning chemicals that say that they're FDA approved to kill off COVID. We could do this at bedside. I will put on PPE and we can get this done. So it's funny. You just don't always know where your practice is going to end up until you see the need there. And it's so strong. I love that. Um, Are you doing fees in the home, Monica? I am. And I... I'm pretty adamant about the fact that we should be able to see the patients where they are. The pitfalls that we fall into there are with the insurance companies. Mm So some of the insurances approve fees in the home and some of them do not. And this leaves us in a funny place as a clinician, as far as forcing patients to pay out of pocket for services that they need. Right. Yeah. So this needs to go also beyond just um, state and national regulation, but also to the insurance companies so that the patients can get their care. If we have people that can't even leave the home, how are they going to get assessment that they need? The objective studies, um, we've seen research after research as to how much more we can see with an objective test compared to a bedside swallow. Yeah. Or even the recent studies about um, the precautions against using thickeners at bedside without an instrumental. Yeah. The other variable, too, is we have these longstanding voice treatments. And fees is another great test where we can see voice function. So we could be doing speak out or LSVT. But both of the protocols say, hey, we need a fees test to say that this is safe. There's no contraindications. This isn't going to be a bad treatment for the patient, and it's truly going to be effective. But with less access to fees, who is going to be able to either go to the home or go to the patient to get all of these tests done? Yeah, I think that's that's such a great point. I think what's what's so crazy is, you know, sort of like this new payment model is shifting more towards in-home care as opposed to 
keeping patients in the hospital or sending them to subacute or sniff or anything like that. Like they want patients to stay home more. And it's like, okay, then why aren't the insurance companies paying for these tests to allow us to do that? And then also goes along with, you know, the state licensure guidelines. There's so many people that will say, well, our state doesn't allow fees in the home. And it's like, do they not allow fees in the home or have they just not made a statement? Do they not even know that fees exist and that it can be done in the home? And I think that's the argument in most of these states. I don't think there are guidelines that say you cannot do it. People just assume since it's not explicitly written that you cannot do it. That's a huge and great point. I ride on the side of I'm going to do this for my patients because it's in their best interest until I'm explicitly told that I cannot. Yeah. Because the, there isn't any guidance that any research I've ever done, I've been able to find that says we shouldn't be doing this care. And I feel like because we should be the experts in these voice conditions, these swallowing disorders, we really need to be able to get to the patient wherever they are to get them care. And like you said, when we started the podcast, it's like, that's really just what drives me and what's on my heart. So I will keep treating the patients as long as I, until I'm told not to, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, I know. And that, and that's such a hard thing. I, like I do, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say blanket statements. So pl- please don't make or misinterpret what I'm saying, because I do know there are a few states that do say you cannot do it in the home. So if you are in one of those states, please do read your state guidelines. But I know there's just so many that do not have anything explicit. And a lot of SLPs are just doing it in the home then. And I know, I know one, I know one SLP, I think she's invested like $30,000 in lawyers to scan like the state board documents to find out if they can do fees in the home. And they came up with nothing. And they said, just go do it then because there's nothing saying that you can't do it. And I think I'm, I'm not saying that's the thing for everybody to go do, um, but it's, it's, it's sad, you know, it's like, an, and we have to take, and, and I think that's where this awareness and advocacy initiative comes in. Like, I love what you're doing. I love all of your work. I love all of your content that's going out. And I, I just want to encourage so many other SLPs to, you know, the louder we get all together, the more that we're going to get attention on us for being able to provide these services that all these patients that are growing exponentially, these populations, like you said, esophageal cancer and just dysphagia in general are just growing so rapidly. And unfortunately, our field is not. I know. I completely agree. And anytime that I am scoping in the home, I do always bring with me another medical professional. God forbid that there is some kind of urgent emergency. And if I can do it in a facility, we will opt to do that first. So if we can do it in office or in a subacute facility, we will. But there are a few cases that it's just not literally feasible. Yeah. 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 Well, I love that, Monica. So thank you for, thank you for standing on that hill. Yeah, absolutely. I just, my big point in coming on this podcast was that I don't want to stand on this hill alone. Mm -hmm. So I think that sometimes if we could kind of band together, we have the research, we have the education, um, we can justify the patient benefit. Our goal is to advocate for those patients. Um, So I was saying to you before too, my career has just changed drastically, even over the last few years in what I set out to do and what I'm now doing. So I actually just partnered with a friend of mine, my friend Kim, we're going to be launching introductory fees courses as well. Yeah, we've done a few um, for local universities, um, but we're going to open up for more SLPs and clinical fellows just because there's things that we feel like we're missing when we went out into mobile fees as well that we wished that we knew. 
or some pitfalls that we just weren't aware of, even cleaning procedures that aren't talked about or things like that. Good. I love that. Yay. I'm so, I'm so happy. I know there's really, you know, there's, there's just a few, you know, groups, camps that teach mobile or teach just fees in general. And I think there's, there's just so much to know. And once you get out there, there, that I do encourage people to take a bunch of different courses. Like don't just take one fees course and think that you're, you know, confident, like get other people's perspectives because there's so much to learn. Absolutely. And, um, I have also taken advanced fees courses. So I've, learned from some amazing, amazing clinicians in our field. And that continued education is so important um, for everyone. So we're trying to just find all the things that all the clinicians are saying that they needed or would have wanted or felt were missing and try and add those things as well. Um, I don't see a lot of courses that even have people using Thicket um, while they're passed on or things like that. So we're going to introduce what we would think would be realistic exams in those introductory courses as well. What do different viscosities look like on a test? What would it look like if we brought in different equipment such as electric stim or the EMST or different functions? What does that actually look like on a fees and um, how would it present? So we're trying to work with some other companies um, to add those things in as well. Um, yeah, I love that. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, everything to hopefully push us forward in the direction that we need to go. I know. It it comes in like waves of momentum. You know, it's like one day I'm like, today I'm going to save the fees world. And it's like the next day I'm pretty tired. Like then it just it comes and goes. So yeah, the most like people we can get on to, I, I just, I feel like we, we've, we've made so much progress, but we still have so far to go. You know, I, I feel like when I first started, 10 years ago, there was just like a very few people doing it. And I love that there's a lot more people doing it, but it's still not as widely accepted as I would love. I agree. And there's just even other parts that would help us to justify fees that speech pathologists don't always have access to either, like being able to recommend a chest x-ray. I see so much pushback and things like that. Like, does the patient have pneumonia? Um, I don't know. The doctor didn't recommend a chest x-ray, so we're not recommending it. If we could advocate for even some of those things for ourselves, um, maybe even before they get um, so severe or advanced, that would be amazing. I would love to get the x-ray back and be able to sit and read it. But I feel like I haven't truly been able to do that since the examples we did in graduate school. Yeah. Um, I just feel like the field doesn't always re reflect some of the capabilities we should have to do. Yeah. Yeah. So you were reading chest x-rays in grad school? They made us do MRI and x-ray. Oh, I, I I love that, honestly. And and something like that I'm learning in my PhD studies right now is like I'm just digging so hard into like these healthcare leadership courses. And it's just so fascinating. Like so many of these other professions like PT and OT get so much exposure to this stuff just to like connect the dots better. And I'm just like, why do, why are we not like getting more medical education just in general? Like obviously we need very specific for what we do, but I think there's so much just general medical education that could have, could be so beneficial for, yeah. I think so too. I love all the growth um, that the field has had thus far. Um, and I obviously haven't been in the field for decades on decades. So I have seen growth since I've been a clinician, but I really do feel like there is so much further that we can go, especially on the medical side of it. I was saying to another clinician today that 
I feel like it's super cool. Some of the stuff that med SLP is doing because it's bringing so much more awareness to all of these aspects that really weren't touched by us for quite a long time. Yeah. I actually have um, a colleague that works at Lehman College with me. I take um, I do some adjunct courses there and he has been in the field for a long time. And he was saying that when he was in grad school, they did not take dysphagia. It was not a course that was offered and it was not part of the field. And that was mind blowing to me at the time um, because I can't imagine our field without it. Yeah, yeah. I know. I know. What was interesting is I've had, there must be like a few graduate classes right now that are like making their students like interview people. Cause I've had like five people in the last few weeks, like reach out to me and they're like, can I ask you some questions for a grad class? And they're all like the same questions. But anyways, one girl I got into more of a dialogue with yesterday, just back and forth with the questions. And she just said, what courses would you like, if you could create a, a program from the ground up, like what courses would you add in? And I just said, you know, uh, uh, there's a few. I said just some general medical courses I would add in. I would also add in like some healthcare leadership stuff because that's really all about like change and advocacy and how do how do you infuse new evidence into a system and a curriculum that's been longstanding in some of these major medical centers? You know, how do you take the research that we're supposed to put into practice, but how does that actually look, right? And I, and and that's not just a challenge in our field; it's a challenge in a lot of fields too. And then also I would just say like some simple business courses too for the fact of, again, in, in business, it's sales, it's marketing. They teach you how to have these conversations, how to advocate for a change, how to advocate for a product. Um, and I think those are just skills that as SLPs, we shy away from, but they would get us so much farther in the field by teaching us, you know, how, how do we sort of play nice in the sandbox instead of just saying, well, this is what I need because I need it. You know, it's, it's a method. It's a process that needs to happen. That's a really good point too, because I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with different nursing facilities or other facilities I'm trying to contract with for fees. And the education isn't there as to why it's so important to have fees there. And I've had to navigate these situations with a good business mind and explaining to them that they could pay $500 for an ambulance transfer in New York or an ambulance transfer to get this patient to the hospital for their appointment, or I could just come in and do it at bedside. But putting those numbers into perspective and showing them this is actually going to save you money. This is actually going to likely lower your rate of pneumonia in the building. We're going to get faster intervention. We're here for your patients. We can get this done faster. And when you have a mentality where you're able to come in and put things like that for other businesses, especially, it is like night and day how fast the outcome changes. Yep. Yep. It is. It's crazy. I mean, I say, you know, it's people get angry because it's like, well, it's all about dollars and cents for my administrator. And it's like, yes, but that's the way the system was created. So either like we can get mad at the system, sure, but we also can just work with the system. And sometimes that is speaking dollars and cents and saying, you know, yes, there are different testing options. Yes, they do show different things. Yes, they are different views. But if it comes down to money, this is the option. If it comes down to needing to see this specific, this is what you're suspecting. This is your hypothesis. It's going to be this test then. But I think laying all of those options, like people appreciate getting educated about different options. And when you throw the money in there too, because that is the decision maker for, or that is the, you know, the tipping point for a lot of these decision makers that 
it just shows that we know what we're talking about that much more. I think so too. And I definitely have patients that I'll still recommend a modified over a fee sometimes, but most facilities only have access to one. Yeah. And I feel like that is a huge change that could happen too. Um, especially when you do have those charts and you can see those things side by side as well. Yeah. I feel like too, a lot of the clinicians that are trying to go into mobile fees have no basis as to what kind of equipment they should have. Um, what do they need? What resources? How do they get cleaning chemicals? Like all of these things are kind of like hush hush in our field, I feel mm-hmm. like. So I've seen clinicians take an introductory course, buy equipment, and then be mortified when they couldn't get contracts immediately, um, just because it can be such a challenge. Yep. I've also had clinicians buy equipment that was sworn to be a mobile setup, but the suitcase was like four feet long and they oh couldn't get it into the car. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I have not heard of that, but I, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, definitely, um, limited education sometimes, um, if they don't have the right resources to ask as far as what's a good setup, um, what would be a good scope? What is the budget? You know, a lot of programs don't even talk about like how much money it would cost mm-hmm. to buy equipment and things like that as well. Yep. Yeah. And the quality is is really different um, depending on the equipment, too. We do have some places by me that use um, just disposable scopes, which over time, especially in the courses, you'll see them start to fade away after a while. Um, but they're great for those couple of passes on that one patient. Yeah. But you see a lot of difference in quality in the equipment, too. Um, so I feel like you really get what you pay for which is so difficult when you're starting out and you're on such a small budget. Yep. It's so true. Yeah. But I feel like there definitely, um, there's definitely a lot of quality um, differences um, between some of the companies. So I think if we had um, better access to maybe some advocates who could go through and even show them, these are, this is the different scope. This one's flexible versus fiber optic. Let me actually tell you what the differences are between them. Just some of those things that I feel like don't get um, light shined on them when you're new in practice. Yeah, yeah. In my fees course, I, I talk about different, like the big thing that threw me is like the handle. Like I was trained on one sort of handle and then all these companies were coming out with like this new ergonomic handle. Like this is the best way to hold the scope. And like my hand mechanics, like do not turn that way. And I'm like, these are things for like people to consider. Like if this is literally going to be your tool that you're going to be using all day, every day, you better be comfortable with it. And not saying that like this, this is better than this, but just like, no, you know, it's just like Nike versus Reebok. Like what feels better on your foot? You know, what scope feels better in your hand? And so I just always encourage people to like call different companies, see, like go to conventions, see if you can hold them, like see what feels good to you. I was really surprised. There's one company that that thing was so heavy. Like I was like, I could not imagine doing like, I mean, even like a 10 minute fees, which some go much longer, but I'm like, there's no way I could hold my shoulder up. Like this holding this thing for 10 minutes, like you're out of your mind. And so I think just, you know, considering these things too. And and on the flip side, one of my friends said, well, this new scope is so light. Like I felt like I just had no control over it because it was just like, it was like light as a feather. And these are just things that it's not like, right or wrong. It's just what feels better to you. And and that's why I think it's so important for 
SLPs to really be able to get their hands on these things and just learn what feels best for you. It's not a, it's not a, this is more superior most of the time. Um, it's just a, what feels best to you. I think so too. And like some of the toggles have the preset that'll yep. put it yep. back to neutral. <laughs> yep. And yep. I don't really prefer that. And yes. there's like preferences you'll have once you've held a few different scopes. Does this one white balance? Does yep. it not? Is the light source internal? Is it not? Yeah. Um, there are things that I think if we could see maybe some like side by side comparisons or if the clinician has the ability to, hey, call this representative, let's try this endoscope first before I make this giant purchase that I'm not sure how it's going to go. Yeah, it's, it's so funny you mentioned the toggle thing. I remember I was helping out at an intro course. And somebody had thought that like you had to put it in a specific setting. I was like, where did you learn that? And they're like, oh, somebody told me you have to put it like forward before you like pull it out. I'm like, you will literally fish hook this patient if you try like pulling the scope out in that position. And so that that's what I, I was like. I went to a whole lesson about like, OK, now we have to know like where the scope is at rest and what it does when you push it forward, what it does when you put, pull it backwards. And it's like these are things you think that people should know ahead of time. But that's the reason they're going to basic courses, right, to learn all the ins and outs of, of using a scope. And I just wish people would get their more hands on them before they actually go stick it in a live person's nose. But that's a whole different yeah. story. So that's another emphasis on the importance of using a good head model before yeah. you put it yeah. on a human being. Yeah. Well, and, and, and to that point too, I think one, one soapbox that I really have, and, and I've experienced this time and time and time again, is I've gone to a bunch of intro courses. And if you think about it, for lack of a better term, it's the blind leading the blind because we have brand new clinicians, brand new. They've never held a scope. They've never put a scope in somebody's nose. All of a sudden putting a scope in somebody's nose and the person sitting for getting scoped has never had a scope in their nose. And they're just saying, ow, ow, ow. Oh my gosh, this is so painful. This hurts so bad. Get the scope out of my nose. So then the scoper loses all confidence because they think they're a horrible scoper. They think scoping is so painful and then they blast on social media. Fees is so horrific and painful. I'd never do it again. I've seen this. I've seen this episode like 30 times. And I think I just, I, I want to like let people know that it it's going to take a while, right? Like do it on a head model 27,000 times if you have to, before you get comfortable with the scope, but then also don't scope your friend the first time. Scope somebody that has had experience getting scoped. Cause I think the big difference is I, I work with a lot of people that are almost like professional scopees. Like they've gotten scoped so many times that they can feel where the scope is. And they'll tell the person like, you're not back far enough. You're not in far enough, like toggle up, toggle down. And getting that sort of feedback, like builds the clinician's confidence, tells them, okay, I am doing this right. Okay. This is something I need to work on. And so that's, I just, I want to ask clinicians, please, if your first time scoping in an introductory course does not go rainbows and butterflies, like Please don't blanket statement say that fees is the worst thing in the world because I promise you there's so many benefits to it. And so that's that's one of my soapboxes about a lot of these intro courses. So yeah, and getting those like confident passes on those head models before stepping into that realm is definitely super important. And having a good head model is also really important. I actually just switched out my head model. Um, these are another thing to like look at real good product dis- descriptions before we buy things like this also. Um, because the last one I had was like made of hard plastic and actually ripped my endoscope. So even just like looking at does this actually resemble 
what it would be like inside a person. Am I confident in passing this um, here before I move it onto a live model and possibly traumatize them thereafter? Yeah, yeah. There, there was one fees course that I was at that had like three head models set up, but then there was also like a few different equipment companies there. And the one equipment company guy was like, okay, my scope is not allowed to be used on any head models because same thing, it got stripped. And it's like, okay, but that's the reason that these people are here. Like, did you bring your own head model then that you do trust this scope to go on in on? And he was like, no. And I'm like, this is not like, this defeats the point. Like, <laughs> I understand like not wanting to get your equipment destroyed. I 100% understand that. But like, please bring something that people can learn on. So. Oh, yeah. Going forward, I will only be using a disposable in the, in the head model, yeah. even though um, the one that I ordered now has been proven to be um, a little bit better of a choice. Okay. I had a friend that uses that one as well. But I do have to say those live volunteers for fees are some of the bravest people that yeah. I have ever met. Yes. <laughs> I don't know that I could bring myself to sign up to sit for all of these passes. I think that in theory for the greater good, I would love to. Yes. But I have a deviated septum and I just don't know if it would be good for anyone. Yeah. Well, and I think, and be, let's be honest about that, right? Like, let's be honest about some of those things. Some people are not going to be easy to scope. It's not going to be very easy for some people, but to blanket statement saying like fees is terrible, fees is painful. Like that's, that's not, that's not fair. I agree. And then that leads to the other hot debate as to do we use a topical anesthetic? Some people do, some people don't. Do we use lubricant? Some people do, some people don't. I think as people are doing so many fees in the field, they get some of those preferences and they know when to use things or when not to use things um, as well. But I think that comes from either having a community of people that have come before you that you can rely on and can teach you or having that background and experience where you sat and did the research and you really put your best foot forward in starting that practice and you're coming from solid ground. Yep. Thank you for saying that, Monica. I think I I had Dr. James Curtis on, I think it was maybe last year, and he did a really interesting rundown of just all the research. And it was, it was so split. Like it was like 50, 50 for using anesthetics. It was like, 50-50 for using lube, like it was so split in all these ways. And I think, and that is where that clinical experience piece comes in, right? Like I have never used any sort of anesthetic, but I've also never worked in a state where I was allowed to put it on the patient. But I also, my own personal preference is not to use it. I don't think we should put numbing agents in people's swallows. That's my personal preference. Other people swear by it. I do swear by lube, but I also have a very, very specific, precise technique of how I apply it to the scope. So it is on like the rounded part and doesn't go anywhere near the camera, which if you get lube on the tip of camera, it's a nightmare. (laughs) But I think what's interesting is like, I have really good friends that I've been best friends with for like 10 years in the field. And we both feel very strongly in opposite ways, but it's also, we have different scopes. We have different body mechanics. Like this just goes along with the experience piece and just doing more doing more fees, learning more, like you said, doing more of the research, finding out what your state regulations are. And I think you know, not persuading somebody else that, well, that's not, that's not right. You shouldn't do it like that. It's like, you don't know how my scope operates. You don't know my body mechanics. Like I may be able to do something different than you. And, and I think that's, like I said, I just, I have so much of that like clinical experience piece in me when it comes to, to fees, because, you know, two people can do the same fees and get same results, but do it wildly different. Absolutely. I feel like I probably do things pretty similar to you, to how you do them, because 
I don't typically use anesthesia either. And I also use a tiny bit of lube. I actually had a patient, I was training a mentee and his nose was like pouring out and she was like going to get more lube. And I was like, don't get lube for the sake of getting lube. Yeah. yeah. I don't think you need it. Yeah. So I think patient by patient, it'll vary sometimes as well. Um, but just having like that clinical background to make those educated decisions when you have a live patient in front of you and feeling comfortable in what is my approach to if they have a nasal cannula and it's really dry in there, what is my approach to whatever you're seeing at that time? Um, I think we really have to be flexible as clinicians. Even for our own body mechanics, I've been in some crazy positions trying to scope somebody who was bed bound or had bed rails that we couldn't take off or things like that. So just really being able to adapt to whatever you have in front of you is so important. Yeah, I have a very vivid image of like I was at this horrific nursing home, like horrific. I would I would never send anybody there, which is I, I love nursing homes for like sniff is my jam. Right. Most people know that about me, but this one very, very bad nursing home. And they're like, the rooms were so small and they had two, two beds, like that were so close together. There was maybe like a foot of space between them. Like that's how small the room was. And so the only way for me to like scope this patient based on, they also had like vent equipment, like there was no space in the room to begin with. Then they put so much other equipment in it. I was standing on the bed, on the bedside table, Like, I just, I remember it so vividly because I was like, dear Lord in heaven, like, this is like not anything I ever thought. Like the director of nursing was like, this is what you have to, like, she supported me 100%. She's like, this is what you have to do. Like, we so appreciate, like, there's no way we could get this patient out for a modified. And that was like, it was so liberating in that point seeing like, because I remember the results we got were like wildly different than what we had hypothesized. And we got this guy in a great, great plan. And so it was like, it was such like a good win for me, but I was just like, I was so proud of myself for going in and just like tackling the problem, but also just like things, you situations you never think you will be in, you know? I was trying really hard not to laugh over you while you were telling yeah. that story because I was having all my flashbacks yeah. to being like half backwards, trying to underhand scope somebody from the wrong way, like yeah. really just doing whatever had to be done to keeping that patient comfortable, but also maybe making myself uncomfortable yeah. just to yeah. make it happen. And I could picture like my whole team vouching for me right now while I'm like sweating. <laughs> yes. Sometimes you just don't know what you're walking into as well. Yeah. Yeah. You, you don't, you don't, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's just such a good feel. Like you can just go home, like knowing that you made such a difference with the patient. And then that's just like what it comes down to for me. Like, I love the challenge. I love the critical thinking that goes into it and just knowing like I made such a difference today. Like I really helped a lot of people get on a really good clear path. And and that's why I'm just so passionate about it because I've seen like for me, so many of the facilities that I went in, it was either like fees or nothing. Like they were either so far from a hospital or they were adamant about not sending their patients on, on an ambulance or ride back to the hospital for a video fluoroscopy. Like it just wasn't anything that they would even entertain. So like I said, it was fees or bust, right? And so to be able to service my community in that aspect and provide the service that these patients would never have had access to like that's what that's what does it for me. Like that that's why this is a hill that I'm not not stepping down from. I love that. And to piggyback off of you, even 
beyond that patient, it's also seeing their families Mm -hmm. be able to be in the room or hold their hand or watch the test or the treating clinician who's been working with them for months on end to make this possible, pouring their heart into the treatment and waiting to see how effective that strength building was or whatever they had been working on. And then they can come in and in real time, do those strategies try those voicing exercises, see if it's working. And we can kind of sit alongside them and almost tag team that that treatment or that eval session. Um, And I just think that there's something amazing about coming in as a team. And I feel like fees is like the perfect way to be able to do that sometimes. You have the the family, you have the clinician, you're all there to try and help. So I love that too. Yeah. There's, there's one family, you know, you have those patients you'll never forget. And there was this one man that um, had, had esophageal cancer, I think like 10 years ago or something, but it was recurring. I think I ended up scoping him like six times over like a three-year period just because he was in and out of chemo, in and out of rehab. But it was me, his wife, and the the facility SLP. And it was just like the three of us would get together. And it was just like, it was the most fun like hour because like the patient was so fun and lighthearted. And, you know, he's like, I only want to eat ice cream and goldfish crackers. Like, don't make me eat anything. Like he was so set in what he wanted. The wife was so set in what she wanted. And the clinician was like, if we can only like, there's no way he'll do those strategies, but he might be willing to do these. And so it literally was just so much teamwork that went into Okay. He says he's okay with this. Are you guys okay with this? Okay. Are you okay with this? Are you okay with this? But had we not had that collaboration and I just went and did the study, wrote, wrote my report, like it probably wouldn't have been worth the paper it was written on. I couldn't agree more. I just think that what we can bring to some of these situations is so valuable. And if we could keep pushing along the field in the direction that I feel like it is headed, um, it's just a really beautiful and almost exciting time to be in the field. Um, so I just can't speak enough on how important it is to challenge our own thinking in how we're approaching some of these situations or educating other clinicians and not just keeping our own knowledge a secret. I feel like that's a huge way that um, Med SLP has created some drive in the field is to just share resources that almost felt like a secret before because you couldn't even have access to them or find them if you needed to. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of my most favorite things is like, don't argue for your limitations, right? Like you, you want to help your community. You want to service your community. You want to be able to provide a good assessment for your, for patients in your community, but you don't like fees. You know, it's like, this can be an option to a lot of those problems that you have. And I think that's like my, my response when I see some people say this, it's like, you're literally arguing for your own limitations right now. And it's not going to change unless you drop the ego and think, okay, maybe there is something to this. You know, maybe I just haven't learned enough about this, or maybe there's just something that I need to just talk to some experienced people about. Like, I think the more people you talk to, just because people aren't out there talking about this stuff, you know, people have lives, people have a million other things going on. I don't know anybody in the world that's not busy right now, but like reach out and ask people because those of us that have lots of experience are more than willing to share. Like, I don't want people to make the mistakes I did in the first few years of my business, the first, you know, few, probably hundred patients I scoped. I would love to be able to go back and redo all of those again, but I can't. So yeah, I'm sure they were probably also amazing, <laughs> yeah. but the collaboration is huge. I yeah. have um, I have close friends that have little niches in other things, and we'll just collaborate as we're passing through our daily tasks. So if I have a patient I'm scoping and they have had a neck cancer, for example, I know in my head exactly 
who I'm going to reach out to as far as diagnostics or recommendations for treatment or things like that, because it's difficult for us to claim that we're masters in every single part of the field. So really just reaching out to those resources that are out there doing these things every day, seeing these populations every day. Um, I just feel like we could continue to grow together. Yeah. I think another thing that comes to mind is I love that phrase, like be the guy. I know we're women, but you know, the phrase like, yeah, be yeah. The guy. like everybody's like, oh, I know a guy, you know, like be that person. Like if you are the fees person in your area, be the guy, be the guy that everyone wants to call, but also know who the other guys are like, know your limitations and that, you know, somebody else might be great at dysarthria treatment. Great. Like ha- create a partnership with them. Tell them like, I, I, you know, so great to know you. I'm happy to, you know, refer patients to you. And, and it, the more we can build our network like that is, is what creates just the spiral effect, the compound effect of our field growing and changing. And I just don't think we do a good enough job just like, again, because we're busy of just finding those people in our area to sort of create our own little networks and create our own little ecosystem of people that we refer people to. I think so, too. I actually have one agency in mind that's on Long Island, and it's like we both do home care. And so they could treat me like competition if they wanted to, but they instead send me all of their fees. And instead of me hijacking their cases and trying to take them over, I write their reports and recommendations, and I send that patient back to where they were getting treatment before um, because they weren't mine before. So the collaboration is really nice. I'll come in and help you. And then I'll stay kind of in my zone for um, the home care that I already have. Yeah. Um, but being able to have some like good reputation and be a friendly face in the field is huge as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. My my son actually has three different physical therapists that he work he works with just because they work on different things. But like we're all in a group chat, and sometimes like one of them will come on and be like, "Okay, I need your guy's opinion." Like he's doing this today. I'm just making up a name, Judy, like, can you check it? Like, what do you think of this? I know you don't usually work on this with him, but like, can you work on this next time with him? And it's just such been such this breath of fresh air lesson in like how, how therapists can just work and collaborate so much with each other. Like there's no competition. They all just want my child to walk. Like they all have their own little zones, their own little specialties, but they're not afraid to say like, what is he doing today? Like, this is weird. Like, can you guys check it out? Can you, you know, have a second opinion? And I just, I so badly want that for our field. <laughs> I love that. We have a like a couple of providers that I can immediately think of um, in the field that aren't that far from me. And it's just crazy non-compete contracts. And this is my borough and this is my zone. And this is, and it just creates so much animosity, but there is so many patients to see that yes. if we could just figure out how to work together, um, that would just be amazing for all of us. Yes, I know. There's so, I, And that's the thing. Like, there are so many patients, you guys, so many patients that need our services. And I think what I, there was a good marketing lesson I had for one of my son's PTs. She came highly, highly, highly recommended. And I finally, you know, we got in with her and I just was like, you have no internet presence. Like you, you don't have a website, you don't have like social media. And she's like, I don't know how to use that stuff. Like people just, it's like all word of mouth is how I get all my patients. And I'm like, but you have such a, like her specialty is so specific. I'm like, do you know the amount of people you could help? Like, even if you just created like classes and courses, there are so many patients out there that need your services. Like it took me two years to find the person. And I'm like a very, like, I'm relentless, but like, I just think of that with SLPs too. Like there's so many patients and I go back to that paper that like one in six patients has, or has dysphagia and only three of the six 
will actually seek treatment. And why is that? You know, and, and we've got to do a better job of branding ourselves that we can help you. We have this knowledge. We have these tools. If we work together, we can help you. I completely agree. And I think that's also how I ended up in mentorship as well. Um, When I looked for a mentor, I had mentors telling me we don't need more fees clinicians. The island covered things like that. And when I went into private practice, even some of those same companies were like, oh, don't worry. If it doesn't go well, I'll hire you. And it's like that is not the momentum that we need for the field. Um, We have so much research, even in cardiac surgery, for a random example of the amount of patients that are coming out that have dysphagia or respiratory compromise or in the dementia population. And we have all of these medical conditions that we are fully aware of that we could be coming in and getting earlier intervention now that there are so many of us. Yeah. Oh, I feel for those remote areas that really don't have providers because we do have a lot of growing um these presence in New York and on Long Island where I am, but other states, I'm always amazed at the lack of providers. Um, I have people flying out for mentorship sometimes because they don't have anyone in their state that's able to provide it. Um, so just kind of meeting people where they are is so important too. Yep. Yep. I, I love that. I love that you're doing that. I have people reach out to me all the time of, you know, where can I get a mentor? How does that look? And it's tough. Like I will say, you know, and, and, and I, I know nothing about the mentorship you provide, but I'm assuming you charge people because your time is very valuable. And I know that's controversial. People are like, well, it's expensive to, you know, take a week off from work and go learn this new skill. And then I have to pay the mentor. And yeah, you do. And, and I, and there's no other way around it. Like everybody wants to get paid for their work. And it's also to mentor someone and do a really good job takes a time commitment, takes a lot of time, takes a lot of brain power. Um, it's not for the week or the, you know, a person that's not busy. It's, that's not possible, but I just, it, it is going to be, it's an investment. You know, I, I think people just have to reframe, you know, it's an expense. It, it's an investment. It's an investment in so much service that you can provide to your community. And if this is something that's, that you're passionate about, if it's something that's on your heart, it is worth the investment. I think so too. And from a mentorship standpoint, we get so much pushback as well from facilities that will allow us to come in with a mentee that doesn't work for the building. So we often have to jump through hoops just to get them medically clear to even come in to see those patients that day. So it is a ton of time and energy on the back end. I usually only take one mentee at a time. So sometimes I'll end up with a small wait list um, just because I want to dedicate my time and attention to that one mentee until they are fully good to go. And then I can mentally move on to the next one. Um, But it does take a lot of setup and preparation and report review. And I do think that um, the money that's spent is really worth it for the time that they should receive in mentorship. Yep. Yep. I agree. I agree. All right. What other soapboxes didn't we get on here, Monica? I can ask you how you got into mobile fees. How did I get into mobile fees? Um, great point. So I was <laughs> working, I was working in one state and we had a mobile, I was working at a sniff. Um, I was working for this corporation that had, we had five different buildings and I would travel to all five buildings and we had a mobile fees company come in and do my fees. And I just loved working with her. I had like the best relationship with, with, best relationship with her. 
Um, she would come maybe like once every other week or something. So like once every two weeks, I would see her like twice a month. And we would just go to like all the buildings in a day and knock out any like these patients that we needed. But I just love, love, loved the collaboration that we had. Like we talked about before, you know, I would just say I've been working with this patient for so long. They've been on thick and liquids. We've tried these strategies. We've done these exercises. Like, you know, is this strategy even effective? And, you know, she would give us the results and say, no, that strategy is doing nothing. Or yes, keep doing that, you know. So I just loved it. Like it opened up this whole world to me. Like it, it almost like unlocked like the next level of being able to help patients and get them off thick and liquids and get them back eating Thanksgiving dinner with their family. All the things, all the reasons we got into doing this, right? So then we moved um, out to Las Vegas and I just, you know, I told my husband like, I'm going to start a, or, or I'm going to work for a fees company. And he was like, okay. And so I got out there and I just assumed that like fees companies were like nursing homes. They were everywhere and like come to find out like, after like six months of research, it just didn't exist. I was like, how is this? Like, why doesn't this exist out here? Like there's no companies. And so like, I called a few nursing homes and I was like, do you guys have mobile fees? And they're like, some either said no, or some said, we don't even know what you're talking about. So (laughs) that answered that. So that's why I started it. And I think what was so interesting was like, I got so many contracts right away. Like I had the administrators buy in right away. I got all these contracts signed right away but I didn't have the SLP support. And that's what honestly started like my blogging and my podcasting and stuff like that was because I did not have, I had all these contracts and I didn't have SLPs referring to me. And when I would call and reach out to them, it was either, we don't believe in fees. I don't even know what fees is. Like, we don't think it's necessary. So I had to do so much education to the SLPs, like to our own field of what this service can provide. And like, you know, by the, by like two, three years that I was out there, like I had a great relationship with so many and they were so gracious that like I was patient or, and I was relentless, but also patient and like encouraging them, like, let me just come in and try with one patient. Like, I, I want you to see what, like the power that this can provide you and it will help make your care plan so much easier. And so I was really proud of the advocacy work that I did, that I did there. So Yeah, I think it's just like once you realize like how much power it gives us and gives the patient to improve and and how much more effective it makes. Otherwise, you're just blindly treating a patient. You know, if you don't know what you're treating, if you can't see what you're treating. That's amazing. I love that that startup story. Yeah. Just because I feel like it's one of those things that just kind of evolved over time and grew into something else and grew into something else. Yeah. It always, I know it always did. Somebody's like, when are you going to like figure out what you're going to do when you grow up? And just like, I'm like, I don't know, probably never. So I still don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. So here I am. Me too. I probably will be doing something else tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks, Monica. I love chatting with you so, so much. Any final thoughts for the people? Any final soapboxes? No, I think that that's really it. Um, My goal for the podcast today was definitely to try and empower all of our fellow clinicians and not deter anyone from stepping into this field, even if it does have some blurred lines in some places or some uncertainty in areas. I say we need to kind of push the envelope so that we can keep things uh, moving forward for our patients. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you so much. Well, thank you so much. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. 
or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next week. 